difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm tasha robinson here again with genevieve kosky and keith phipps and special guest star john marr culture writer and co-founder of the much missed animation writing website the dot and line our usual co-host scott tobias is off raising giant pill bugs to be riding animals we keep telling him that is a bad investment but he just won't listen On last week's show, we talked about The Last Unicorn, Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr.'s 1982 animated film adapting Peter S. Beagle's best-selling fantasy novel about a unicorn on a quest to find out what happened to the rest of her kind. This week's last-of-her-kind fantasy creature is in a different position. She knows exactly what happened to her people, and she doesn't actually know that they can be saved. She's just trying to stop the incomprehensible force that turned them all to stone before the last survivors of humanity go the way of the dragons before them. Raya opens in a post-apocalyptic landscape where the title character, a human teenager named Raya, voiced by the Star Wars series' neglected co-star, Kelly Marie Tron, is off on a quest looking for the last dragon. In a previous generation, a malevolent power called the Droon began turning people and dragons to stone, until the dragon Sisu, voiced by pop musician and the farewell star Aquafina, created a stone from her magic and drove the Droon back. When that stone is shattered and the pieces are claimed by the five warring tribes of Raya's broken kingdom, she finds and revives Sisu, and they set out to reclaim the pieces of the stone and defeat the Druun again. It's a classic video game fetch quest, complete with periodic power-ups for Sisu, and an episodic story where Raya and Sisu gain new companions at every stop. But it's really a story about learning to trust again after a betrayal, and about dealing with anger and resentment in ways that don't shut down your life. Like Moana before it, Raya is a conscious attempt for Disney animation to keep moving further away from its decades-long tradition of European-only fables, complete with an all-white roster of princesses who only show some moxie until things get dangerous, then get rescued by a prince. Once again, Disney's drawing from a specific mythic culture, in this case, Southeast Asia, and bringing in a brain trust of cultural advisors and creators to make these stories as authentic as possible. Sisu was inspired by the folklore of Naga rather than by Western or Chinese dragons. She's meant as a spirit of hope rather than fortune or power. The tribes of Raya's country, Kamandra, fight with four distinct martial arts, respectively from Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. Southeast Asian screenwriters Kui Gwen and Adele Lim drew specific elements like the food seen on screen or the floating water market from their own backgrounds. But this is still a Disney movie, with big action sequences, feel-good moments, characters designed seemingly with toy marketing in mind, and inevitably, a big Disney death climax. We'll get into our thoughts on the film and the criticisms that are already dogging it in just a moment. Let's catch you up. My name is Raya. Our lands have been at war for as long as we can remember. Our people never see eye to eye. My daughter, I believe our people can come together again, but someone has to take the first step. Now, in order to restore peace, we must find the last dragon. I wish to join this fellowship of butt kickery. Let's go. We'll have to watch our backs. We're not the only ones looking. Six years of searching. Please, let this be it. Almighty Sisu! Who said that? We really need your help. Ah, I'm gonna be real with you. I'm not, like, the best. 
dragon. Have you ever done like a group project, but there's like that one kid who didn't pitch in as much, but still ended up with the same grade? Uh, we're doomed. So what are everybody's thoughts about Ryan the Last Dragon? John, we, we do actually try to uh, kick off with a guest. Let's, let's hear from you first. So I will go on record right now as saying two things. One, I am a grouchy, old school, <laughs> traditional animation person who generally could not care less about anything done in a CG style. I also am a white dude. <laughs> so putting those both on the table, I like this movie quite a bit. And despite finding it fairly difficult to watch it without my critic brain going, there's a trope, there's a trope, <laughs> there's a trope, I found it to be a really enjoyable watch uh, and a smooth one in mm -hmm. a way that The Last Unicorn very much is not, uh, in that it felt like every piece was working exactly how it was supposed to work, if a little too cleanly. I tend to like my animation with a little bit of weirdness and, frankly, failure. <laughs> I mean, the, the human nature of animation is something that people don't always necessarily point out as being something they love deeply, but it's something I do love very deeply. Seeing the little errors in animated things or seeing limited animation. We mentioned in our chat last week about The Last Unicorn, that the studio that did Peanuts was almost going to do The Last Unicorn before people said, no, 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 no. I love <laughs> that you can see how every two seconds the snowflake pattern in the Peanuts Charlie Brown version repeats. <laughs> like, I love that. That's, that's something that I find that I have a deep affection toward. I always find CGI movies to be a little bit harder to break into in that way, in that Sometimes it's a little uncanny valley. I mean, there are moments in this movie where the characters are so perfectly animated that I actually thought they were human. And that threw me a little. But also the storytelling is just like, it's too perfectly oiled a machine. This is a Disney movie through and through. And you can count the plot beats as they come. But I also want to acknowledge that the world itself is such a remarkable thing. This is not a setting that Western animation explores, really ever. I, I mean, I'm, can anybody think of a time when Southeast Asian culture was, was explored in this way? In, not by in American an animation? I'm yeah. unfortunately not all that uh, up on like what kind of animation scene like Malaysia or Indonesia might have. I've certainly seen Western animation inspired by Indonesian art or Indonesian puppetry, Indonesian storytelling, but I'm not sure I've ever actually seen an Indonesian animated film. Yeah, John, you kept, you know, using these phrases like, you know, smooth and well-oiled. And like, after I watched this movie for the first time when it was over, I said, well, that was a slick movie. Like, it is just, as you said, a well-oiled machine. Like, there are no little bumpy patches. It's just buffed and shined to an inch of its life. Like, you can picture the attraction at Disney World that's going to be there in a, in a few years based on it. Like, I can picture the mobile app that's going to, you know, like, it's just like... It's it has a feeling of just being conceived and executed to with, within an inch of its life. And it very much worked for me. Like I say that and it sounds critical, but you know what? I do really respond to seeing like well-crafted, high level of difficulty 
animation. And that's like what this is. And I'm not a grouch about CG. And I'm I just I like things that are pretty. And this film is pretty. And I liked to look at it. I like to watch it on my nice big new television that I just got. I watched it twice. It was like the perfect like this is what I'm breaking in my new TV with movie. And I feel great about that. And you know, the story, yeah, the beats are very predictable, but it gets by in this world building, which as I've spoken about on this podcast before is another thing that I, I really respond to. I love the details of a where I like to see all the details of the world. I like little interesting flourishes, you, you know, that kind of tell me something about this world and the people in it. And this movie is just packed full of that kind of stuff. So it's like, there's never a moment where I could like disengage from this movie like if I wanted to like it really does kind of pull you along by your nostrils you know through it and I was very much along for the ride I loved it I mean, everything <laughs> you're saying is, is absolutely true I mean it, it is a product of uh, people that know what they're doing but there's a reason these these you know there's a reason these formulas work and I also think it transcends the formula in a lot of ways like I've, I've had myself very emotionally invested in this film and in its characters i know what a disney death is i know they're coming back they're coming mm-hmm. back that's what that's how they work but the the big death in the scene really got to me and and beyond that you know i thought the action scenes were action scenes of a caliber of a live action film mm-hmm. not just like this is good animated action i felt as engaged as, and, and as sort of gripped by what i was watching as if i were watching a martial arts film in some ways the design, the execution, the the you know the fact that they did their homework in terms of of representing these cultures, I think really paid off in some really good ways. And and yeah, you know what, it is a classic story of a, of a certain type. Um, you know, gathering a bunch of ragtag, a bunch of highly merchandisable characters. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but boy, it, it had me from beginning to end. I was I was very much on board with this film. Keith, were you just asserting that live action fight scenes are better than animated fight scenes? Because I'm ready to write out a list to prove you wrong. (laughs) Sure. I'm I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. But I I guess I don't always find myself as in suspense as to what's going to happen next versus admiring a very stylized, beautifully animated fight scene. Also, the fights in this were, they they did have a visceral quality that I feel I don't associate with, especially Disney films, but like the the Mm. foley on this this movie, like like just like the flesh getting smacked was uh, was of a quality that I, I was not fully expecting. I thought it was fine. (laughs) <laughs> I really enjoyed So wait, 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 wait Are you to this movie as I was to The Last Unicorn Or are you going to be the, uh, the, the the sour one? Well, we were all a little sour on Last Unicorn Oh I yeah, I, I took everybody's being a bit sour on Last okay, Unicorn Okay, fine, go, go ahead then I don't feel sour on Raya exactly I really enjoyed it, but here's the thing I really enjoyed the process of watching the movie The whole time I was watching it I, I was involved in it i was involved in the uh in the emotions and the visuals and the second it was over i kind of had a huh okay is that is that all there is is that the sum total of this movie it ended up feeling a lot smaller than i thought it was going to feel based on what it seemed to be trying to do and for me i think the big problem there is just how this movie feels for me in comparison with Moana, which is in some ways a very similar coming of age story about a young woman 
from a, a specific culture who's like respecting her family and yet at the same time having to strike out on her own to protect her family and in the process like picking up magical fantasy companions and facing off against this thing that isn't so much a villain as a giant force of nature and finding out that's like something that she hated and feared is actually not something to be hated and feared all this stuff i think moana did a lot better a lot with more- music <laughs> yeah, a lot more resonantly and a lot more emotionally. And part of that was just the music. You know, there's there's nothing in Raya that grabbed me and stuck with me the way the song You're Welcome from Moana did. And then the rest of the songs in Moana, I liked a lot when I was listening to them, but they stuck with me over time. And I went back and listened to them and they caught me up more and more and I could more and more feel the emotion. They, they had like a lasting impact. All that slickness and like irresistibility and curried to a fault quality of Raya that you're talking about, I think makes it a very easy to swallow viewing experience, but one that just didn't leave a taste in my mouth at all when it was over. And I just, I find myself wondering like what they could have done to deepen it. And that's where I kind of get to that place of, well, this could have been a TV show where we could have explored some of these cultures in a little more depth I think after that first visit to one of the splintered kingdoms where she picks up a stone and (laughs) Aquafina Dragon picks up a new uh, power and they pick up a new companion, I immediately went, okay, well, we've already got the pattern laid out. This is what every single one of them is going to be until they face the grown-up version of uh, the little girl who betrayed her in childhood. At that point, it it just started to feel like, okay, well, we know exactly what's going to happen next. It's just going to be repetition, 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 fight scene, pay off the end. Big emotional moment with her dad. And so the only thing left to wait for and depreciate was the detail, the visual detail, the details of the world building, uh, the details of the characters. And I don't know that the characters are that richly built or that specifically built. By the end of Moana, I had a very good sense of who Moana was, what she wanted, where her failings were, like where she was maybe a little too naive and giving for her own good, but like where she had a a really strong spine. With Raya, I just kind of got a a generic, yeah, she mad. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I didn't feel that either she or her companions had the kind of depth that the characters in Moana, or for that matter, Tangled, or for that matter, Frozen had. So I I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. I thought it was very pretty. I definitely regretted not being able to see it on a big screen because this is a spectacle movie. Mm -hmm. And yeah, more than more than well, it's a much better movie. But more than Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four. This is a film, or or even Soul. This is a film I wish I'd seen on on uh, a big screen in the last few months. Yeah, I really liked Soul, but I think it it was a fine small screen movie. I, I don't think for the most part. Like it could have been uh, like exciting and overwhelming seeing all of those weird uh, before world spaces on the big screen, but it didn't feel required in the way some of the set pieces here did. So I think it might have been an even more like engaging experience on a big screen, but I don't know that it would have lingered with me in any emotional way any longer than it did in any other viewed fashion. I'm thinking about this in comparison to how we were talking about the last 
unicorn as such like kind of a, a bumpy and stilted viewing experience but then like as we were talking about it we you know kind of found all these little like deeper pools of, of, of meaning and, and things to think about and there was just like there were things to pour over in its idiosyncrasies whereas you know talking about Raya like it feels like we're talking about going on a roller coaster like yeah it was fun it was great it was so smooth I you know I was totally in it while I was on it and then when it's over it's like Maybe you're like, I want to go again. <laughs> that was my my feeling. But I'm also not sitting there like pouring over like the angle of that first drop <laughs> and the and the bank on that turn. You know, like it's not it's not a movie that invites a lot of variety of interpretation. You know, there's certainly things to discuss about it, and apparently there's controversies around it. Although I, I haven't heard those yet, so you'll need to fill me in there, Tasha. But you know that smoothness, that slickness, that ease of viewing, I think maybe translates to a, a lesser post viewing experience. It's a movie that calls out its own tropes and boilerplates too, and I, I think it's sort of very obvious in doing so. In the most significantly obvious way, there's that scene where there is a parody of a heist movie going on before the parody of the heist movie is cut short. But even with the way that the introduction is done, it is very much a here is the prologue. And then each chapter is enumerated on the screen. Here's tail. Here's fang. Here's where we're going at X, Y, Z point. It made me think, and this is the absolute oddest, like, jump from one film to another so i apologize for how strange this is but it made me think of a serious man um in, oh, wow in i told you i told you it was weird in how you know the, the coens were like almost joking in how they introduced you know the first rabbi the second rabbi and marshak mm -hmm. here like it's it doesn't feel joking but it does feel like the people who put together this movie know very well the formula they are using to make it do exactly what it needs to do for the children who are watching it. It's why the the moral of the story, which I'm sure we'll get to very soon, is so easily gotten. You could predict what the moral of the story is going to be a third of the way through, whereas I'm not sure we actually landed on a moral for The Last Unicorn after an hour and 20 minutes of talking about it. I do think, you know, it's it's all very conscious, which is part of why it feels so slick to me. It's like filmmakers know exactly what they're doing. As far as the controversies of the film, Genevieve, there's a piece in time that summed them up that kind of wraps together a lot of the different complaints I've been seeing. The title of that article is Raya and the Last Dragon introduces Disney's first Southeast Asian princess. Advocates say Hollywood representations shouldn't stop there. I, I would like to workshop that headline. It's a lot. It's not really a, a headline so much as a couple of sentences. But I mean, as somebody who's uh, repeatedly tried to cram lengthy, nuanced pieces into seven words, I, I appreciate them having the space. The piece sums up a bunch of the different things that people have said in uh, response to Raya. One one of the big ones being a complaint that the none of the actors are actually from the region being portrayed. They're, you know, two people from the countries that were drawn on and that the writers are from. The voices are all wrong. That's one of the big complaints. Another one is that it kind of 
bunches the whole Southeast Asian region together without a lot of specificity. Uh, the writer specifically didn't want to do a, let's go to Fang. Fang is Malaysia. Let's go to mm-hmm. Tail. Tail is Thailand. Because they didn't want to introduce a, okay, well, this one country is evil. It's where the evil people came from. And this one country is just about food. Like they didn't want that one-to-one correspondence. But then the kind of the countervailing argument is you just end up with a big mush of all these countries are one country. And then there was a, a complaint that that stories about Vietnam and Vietnamese Americans and people of Vietnamese descent are constantly seeing their own stories only told from the perspective of like response to war. And that's, you know, very much going on here. I don't want to dismiss any of these complaints. I don't want to gloss over them. I do think that kind of what we're seeing there is the typical problem of when you only have one of something, it suddenly becomes emblematic of an entire people, you know, and an, an entire race. Like if we haven't seen an animated Disney princess from Malaysia, suddenly the animated Disney princess with potential Malaysian roots, we have to analyze all the different ways she doesn't successfully stand in for all of Malaysia. And Moana came in for a lot of the same criticisms uh, because of the Polynesian cultures it was representing. Well, you know, the body types are are stereotypes of uh, Polynesian people or like this aspect or that aspect of the culture or the music or the the voices or whatever isn't right. And I have to admit, it it does sometimes make me tired Mm -hmm. uh, to see studios at least trying And like every diversity effort has to be met with, well, we see that you tried, but it isn't good enough. It isn't specific enough. It's like, yeah, you you need to keep making steps, but maybe the first step isn't going to be the perfect one. I think it's good to raise these issues, though. I mean, even if it's, I, I think it, it's like you know, I hate it when it's like movie bad because of this. <laughs> but I think it's important that that we have the discussion anyway. But I think what you're talking about is, is is totally right as well. If there were a dozen such films, this one wouldn't have to get everything right. Yeah, and obviously, it's very easy for me as a, a white person to say, well, let's not have this discussion about how this movie about people of color represents people of color. Like, it's not really my place to say that. So I think you're right. I think we do need to have the discussions. But at the same time, I also think you're right. We don't have a dozen of these yet. But we've got to have a first one in order to have a dozen of these. Mm-hmm. So maybe we talk about like how to improve the next one in a tone that isn't quite so dismissive of the first effort. I also get hung up on some of these criticisms when they're applied to a fantasy world that is an, an amalgam, you know, and like I do think that was a purposeful choice on the part of the filmmakers to avoid these sort of one to one comparison complaints that it is nonetheless still kind of coming in for. And maybe the fact that it is trying to is so clearly trying to sidestep that in creating this sort of uh, amalgam culture is something else it is being criticized for. But like, this is a fantasy world that is, you know, being presented to us as an interpretation of that world. And that's an approach that has been applied to, you know, European cultures and fantasy worlds too. Like Beauty and the Beast <laughs> doesn't get everything about, you know, 17th century French culture just right, you know. And obviously that's a different story when you're talking about cultures that have not been represented in Western film. But it, I think just in terms of discussions about storytelling and artistry and artistic choices, it gets really limiting to be like, 
you didn't do this exactly the way it is in real life. And I think that's where my frustration with these conversations come from while, again, still acknowledging that they're conversations that need to happen. But it does kind of, like you said, Tasha, make you a little tired. Basically, I want us to be able to have these uh, conversations without them being dismissive. But speaking of being a bit dismissive, John, I'm really curious what you make of the design elements of movies like this, given your lack of interest in CG. Like CG Disney movies, I think, are just developing this visual language that's as idiosyncratic and specific as like the old Disney language. The thing that uh, studios used to imitate slavishly, kind of hoping that their movies would be mistaken for Disney movies. The design that was just kind of considered standard American animation in uh, imitation of Disney. It feels like CG is developing its own similar language. And I'm wondering sort of what you think about how this film looks and how it compares to other CG movies. Well, it's certainly, I think, you know, Disney, <laughs> Disney would be robbing Pixar blind if it hadn't just bought it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think, uh, you know, not to go too deeply back in the conversation you were just having, but like part of the problem here, right, is that the people that can afford to make the kind of films that are viewed by this many people are the same corporations that are able to buy any other mm -hmm. corporation that tries to rival them. If you want to have a, a conversation about the problem here, the problem is that creators do not have you know, the kind of opportunity that they need to make the kind of representative films that people want because the companies that allow those films to break through into the mainstream own everything. But that's a much longer conversation. And, uh, you know, as much as I want to cancel Disney, we're not going to do it today. <laughs> I do think the, the visual language here aside, I mean, obviously, the setting is very different in a lot of ways from what we've seen in, in Disney movies in the past. And I think the specific interest in developing sort of a, a world that cares about martial arts in this particular way is kind of different as well. Uh, although again, I, I will acknowledge that I am I am not actually an expert on CGI because I try to avoid it. It doesn't appeal to me in the same way as traditional animation. There is a, a visual storytelling language here. Uh, one of the, the hallmarks of it, to my mind, is just like, and we've talked about this already, the smoothness of the way that it is both clearly animated and also kind of hard to distinguish at moments from live action. And as someone who loves comics and cartoons and animation, all of which kind of sometimes blur together, that's really particularly interesting to me. Well, I question in some ways how we've gotten here, because sure, you know, the more technology develops, the more you want to be able to make something look realistic in, say, a video game, right? You know, we've been trying to make Link look human since the first Legend of Zelda, so why not in the most recent one, well, the most recent one kind of did an anime version, but maybe Link is not a good example. You know, we've been trying to make Solid Snake look human since <laughs> the first time he showed up in Metal Gear Solid, so why not put him in cinematic cutscenes and have him be extremely, extremely photo accurate in terms of representation in the most recent Metal Gear? I mean, that makes, that makes sense. But we don't see ourselves in Solid Snake when we play 
the video games. We possess him if we are playing him as a character. Like we don't, we don't, I haven't played the Metal Gear games. Have you noticed? We don't <laughs> see ourselves in those characters so much as we possess them and incorporate ourselves into them while we play them. Whereas when you're, when you're reading a, a comic or watching a cartoon, you know, the comics theorist Scott McCloud talks about the iconography how we project our faces onto cartoonish faces. We see ourselves in these faces, no matter what they look like, because they abstract form. Uh, you know, we can all see ourselves in Mickey and Minnie Mouse in a way that is a lot harder to see ourselves in John Hamm, um, <laughs> even if you're a fairly conventionally attractive white dude. This is a different story here, where <laughs> the visual representation of the people in this in this story are it feels way more human, and when they don't, when it's cartoony, it's very obvious. Like the pill bug, uh, Duck Tuck. Is it Tuck Tuck? Duck Tuck. Yeah, Tuck Tuck. Yeah, it's Tuck Tuck. Okay. Voiced like by bug. Alan Tudyk for some reason. I don't know why you go out and get an Alan Tudyk to make the occasional noise, but they did. Yeah, especially when they're like voice actors specifically that do exactly that. But I think Alan Tudyk does like a lot of animal voices. Oh, he does. I mean, he's kind of becoming the new Frank Welker. That's something that I find really interesting about this is like, if you look even back in, in 2009, you look at Up, you know, the main characters of Up are cartoony faces. You can't say that about this movie. These are much closer to being people. And the more that Disney gets in that direction... The more I wonder why even animate the movies. Well, do you feel like that's a general trend that they're all Disney stuff is heading or just specific for this film? I think specifically for this film. I think that's a good call out there. Yeah, I, I, I think, think you know, little... I know what you're saying about, about, you know, easier to project onto a more iconic and less detailed figure. And that's part of the power of animation. But I, I feel like, you know, we'll try it for this one. See how, see how it works. I think it worked out pretty well for this. I, I like with you, though, I would not necessarily want to see every animated film look like this or a general drift toward, you know, photorealism in animation. I'm, I'm a little troubled by how on television there's like three different animation styles that you see in every mm -hmm. animated show. Either looks like Rick and Morty or Bob's Burgers these days, uh, you know, uh, or so Steven I, Universe, or Steven Universe, <laughs> and I'd love to, see, and you know, all good shows, all, yeah. uh, but but I'd love to see a little more variety on on television and and in movies as well. In some ways, I, I do feel like I like that Soul was more stylized. I feel like there's a period there where it was you kind of had to like step back and say, well, am I watching a Disney movie or a Pixar movie for a little while? And I feel like there's been a little bit more of a distinction lately, at least. I feel like a lot of that distinction is coming from Pixar, though, because if you look at how far off the the human models in Seoul are, for the most part, from real people, like, it's a lot further than they are in Raya and the Last Dragon. I mean, in Moana, Moana in particular, they're trying to answer some of their critics who say that their characters are present unrealistic body types. It's not that long since Frozen. It's even less time since Frozen 2. And those characters kind of typify Disney's belief that all women should have eight-inch waists and two-inch necks uh, and 50-inch <laughs> and eyes. So, like, I'm not sure that I agree with you on this one just because I feel like Disney embracing this visual style but also moving towards slightly more realistic body types and skin colors is probably a good thing. 
with a good dinosaur, Pixar played around with uh, photorealism. And, and that's a direction I don't really want to go. I like I, I agree with you that if you're going to create water that looks exactly like water, acts exactly like water, moves exactly like water, why operate in animation at that point? And maybe the answer is cheaper special effects. You know, maybe that's something they can license out to other people as a, a side business, which is something an awful lot of special effects houses do. But as far as like the characters in Moana and Raya looking more like people than the characters in Frozen do, I, I honestly kind of think that's a healthy move. I mean, I don't think that in particular is a bad thing, but I think you can be more effectively representative in how you depict characters in terms of how people actually look without necessarily stylizing them visually to look more like live action. For instance, like the issue of waist size. All that needs is the removal of patriarchal sexism. You don't need, you know... Oh, is that oh. I mean, yeah. Surprise! The solution is the problem. Removing the problem. Uh, but you don't, you don't need this kind of technical visual to do that. You could do that with the same animation in The Last Unicorn. All you have to do is not portray people as a sexist stereotype. Again, all you have to do. For me, it's the technical aspect of it that pulls me out. I mean, when I want to disappear into animation, I want to disappear into like a deliberately artificial thing that finds a way to make things realer than real through deliberate artifice, which of course this arguably also does. I'm just yet again hammering home that I'm a grouch about CGI. This is all we're learning from me in this segment. I think a lot of this conversation is applicable mainly to the protagonists of these films, but not yeah. as much to the supporting cast, which I think is really strong in Raya. Like, and even Sisu in her human form, you know, is a little off model for a Disney female heroine. Of course, she is also a, a dragon, <laughs> you, you know, but and she's also made very much to look like. Like Aquafina, like that is a character who definitely has Aquafina's features and physicality kind of grafted onto her. But sort of the the band of uh, <laughs> characters that they pick up along the way kind of fall into the stylized character types that uh, you know we kind of see repeated in Disney films. I'm thinking of Tong, uh, the the warrior voiced by Benedict Wong, who kind of fills the large hulking dude, <laughs> uh, you know, slot. He that, feels uh, like he came straight out of that bar, the sort of a uh, villain's bar in Tangled. Hmm. Yeah, so like. Tong comes out of sort of the same character model as Maui in, in Moana, this like hulking, just large. He's a large character. A lot of like the variation in uh, characterization in, in Disney movies is just like a matter of scale. You know, like if you look at this group, they're all just like kind of different height charts. You know, you have a very large man and a very small baby and a very skinny boy, you know, and it just like kind of creates a... I guess, like a spectrum of, of, of characterization, but in combination, that kind of gets away from this hyper-realism effect that uh, maybe is more apparent on an individual character level. We're getting real esoteric here, which <laughs> is on the one hand, terrific, and on the other hand, not, not, not really pinning down anything more about Raya itself. I feel like there's a lot more to talk about, but that probably almost all of it can be done in connections. Maybe the one element that, that people are talking about a fair bit that we might want to touch on 
that I don't think has any real parallel in The Last Unicorn is the possibility that Raya and her opposite number, the girl that she meets in childhood who ends up as her frenemy or Namari. just a rival, Namari, yeah. that there might be a romantic connection there. Like Kelly, Kelly Marie Tran, who voices Raya, has uh, come out as, I think, as much in favor of that as one might be allowed to on a Disney junket. And certainly the kind of people who are perpetually hungry for any scent of a, a gay relationship whatsoever in big popular movies are definitely uh, jumping on this uh, because of the spark of tension between them, that that spark of connection, that spark of jilted longing that Raya gives off that almost seems more appropriate to somebody who feels she's been broken up with than somebody who feels she's been sold out. Uh, what do you what do you make of the gay content or possible gay content in this movie? Well, and, and also sort of the, the theme of trust as it applies to their relationship, too, I think is another sort of thing that can be, uh, you know, extrapolated out to a, a queer relationship. Even before, you know, Kelly Marie Tran commented on it, like I, I definitely picked up on that coding in my first watch and, you know, kind of knew what we were in for as far as the conversation there. I think that, you know, Disney has kind of been seeding these conversations from from Frozen onward, you know, with 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 its big features, and you know there was like the conversation of whether you know Elsa will have a, a girlfriend in in Frozen two, which of course didn't happen, um, you know, and I don't think that they are yet at the point where they will go so far as to make any of that subtext text, but I think they are getting a lot more uh, overt in that subtext, and this is I think quite overt yeah it's, def- it's definitely there i mean the, it is definitely the strongest connection between two characters of of any sort of there's just not enough there to say it's a romance but you may as well say it's a romance you know what i mean well there's a lot more to say about namari and that relationship but i think we can definitely bring that one up within connections so let's move on we'll be right back to talk about how the last unicorn and ryan the last dragon speak to each other According to this, after the mighty Sisu blasted away all the drone, she fell into the water and floated downstream. Legends say she's now sleeping at the river's end. But which river? There's like hundreds. I don't know. But if we could find it, could you imagine a dragon back in the world? Things could be so much better. Yeah. Maybe we really could be Kumandra again. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, Genevieve, you want to lead us off here? Yeah. You know, we've, we've already mentioned many times how these films are, are very distinct in style and story and, and substance. But I think where they are most alike in form is sort of their central uh, quest narrative and uh, a road journey in which our protagonist picks up companions along the way. And to my mind anyway, it feels much more pro forma in Raya than it does in 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 Last Unicorn. I didn't even kind of pick up that we had gone down that that road uh in the Last Unicorn until we were like at the end of it. I'm like, oh yeah, this they have a they have a band. I, I didn't even realize realize that had happened until it was it was already there. Um whereas Raya, you know, is 
as you said, Tasha, it's like actually divided into lands and we pick up a new companion in each land and along with a stone. And it's very like methodical in, in the way this sort of um, group builds. Whereas in The Last Unicorn, I feel like it feels a lot more stumbled into. Yeah, the quest is just such a time-honored aspect of epic fantasy. The uh, I, I have to go get a thing. Possibly in order to get a thing, I have to assemble a bunch of things, or possibly I just have to find a thing and face the thing. And we get both forms of it in these two movies. But the idea of along the road, you build up a coterie of loyalists, I think, is kind of an interesting parallel here, particularly to the degree... like. Raya feels like she ends up sort of in a, a parental relationship with her companions. She has to rein them in when they want to go do crazy stuff. At the very end of the movie, she has to uh, stand up for them as a leader and and lead them to this form of trust that they're not capable of taking. But with The Last Unicorn, our protagonist loses herself for a while. She completely forgets who she is and her companions kind of become servants to her, but also have to lead her to finishing the quest, have to lead her back to herself in a way. So we kind of end up with very different relationships to the road companions in these two movies, while still kind of maintaining the idea of, of course, if you're on a road, if you're in a road movie, a road movie is always a journey of self-discovery and, and exploration. And of course, you pick up people on the way who are inspired by what you're doing. In Raya and the Last Dragon, the Last Dragon is the secondary protagonist. In The Last Unicorn, the Last Unicorn is the protagonist. And I think that dynamic, by definition, even with the films being very different and having different meanings, that dynamic like shifts the way the film is going to unroll no matter what. Yeah, and it's particularly, I think, an interesting dynamic because both of these films no matter who the protagonist is, both of these films have to sideline their magical fantasy creatures at the end. Both of them have to leave the human protagonists to fumble on in their comparatively small human way. If you've got a magical immortal creature with you, of course, you're going to expect the magical immortal creature to be a big part of the problem solving. So both of these films kind of have a, a big beat in the third act where they shove that character aside and just kind of leave the humans to figure out what's going on. Which brings us to, you know, another connection, which is the fact that these are both films with mythical, fantastic beasts. And, but I think they approach them, them very differently for reasons, you know, you laid out, obviously, that The Last Unicorn is the protagonist and, and, and uh, Sisu is not the protagonist of uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. Raya is, but I think they have different attitudes toward the beasts themselves, where The Last Unicorn is in many ways, a, a, apart from humanity, the dragons and Raya and the Last Dragon are... And, you know, they're to aid humanity or, or helpers or, or embodiments of the best virtues of humanity. They bring uh, the which water. I, they, they bring the water. That's right. <laughs> uh, so it's I think that that makes for an interesting contrast when looking at these two movies together. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that in The Last Unicorn, the human characters hold the unicorn in awe. Uh, they think of her as this almost natural force that's beyond them, that's bigger than them. And they have big emotions around her. But Ryan the Last Dragon goes out of its way to puncture that almost instantly when Raya and Sisu meet. Sisu refers to herself as the sea student uh, dragon, <laughs> you know, the, the dragon that just kind of came along for the ride and didn't have anything to do with like the big important magic. The Last Unicorn is all about humbly assisting the magical beast on its quest or to some 
degree, just kind of tagging along with it out of that sense of awe. And with uh, Raya, Raya and Sisu are, are partners. Raya also sometimes has that parental attitude towards Sisu of kind of, uh, you know, shivying her from place to place and telling her when she thinks she's being naive. But the two of them learn from each other in a really important way. And culturally in this world, there's a lot of respect for dragons, you know, like they are physically saluted, you know, when, when, when humans come to face with them, like they are, humans do hold them in awe, like generally, and even Sisu in the, in the early going when uh, Namari, you know, is showing off her necklace and, you know, their big dragon stands, you know, but then the characterization of Sisu that we get you know, kind of brings her down to earth and by extension, her relationship with Raya down to earth and then by extension, everyone else in their band's relationship with with her. So it humanizes this this godlike creature. And, you know, here here is a sort of sub connection in both of these movies. These mythical beasts do take on a human form, but under very different circumstances and with very different reactions to becoming human that I think sort of the, the difference in those reactions speaks to the difference in the human mythical beast divide in these two films. I think it's kind of funny that both of them in their human form uh, just has this have this like huge tousled uh, inhuman amount of hair. It, it's just it's meant <laughs> to they're, they're both marked out as different from humanity, specifically by the extreme quantity and unlikeliness of their hair. And the uh, last unicorn, it's tastefully nudity obscuring hair, too. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I think it's interesting also, in the same sort of way, that both of them are kind of color-coded to be outside anything else in the movie. They're they're both white and blue creatures. Like They're almost the same color palette just in terms of their paleness. Their, it, I think what's being emphasized is kind of a purity and a coldness that's what we expect from white and blue. And both of them are meant to pop out of these. The scenes around them are mostly in earth tones, the tones of like stone and, and dirt and trees and like wooden buildings in Raya and like actual stone and dirt most of the time in, in Last Unicorn. They're just they're both very expressly colors that you don't see a whole lot of in nature, except maybe in water. Raya's coloration just reminded me of Sully from Monsters, Inc. It's almost exactly the same color palette, maybe a few tones lighter on each of the colors. But I, I, I do see your point in that the mane of, of the unicorn has those hints of purple and blue. It is interesting that the deliberate ethereality that they're trying to convey with that color palette, it's almost... And not to put too fine a note on it, since both of these characters are very heavily associated with water uh one for a natural reason and one for an unnatural reason mm. which is an interesting little parallel too but it reminds me a little bit of watercolors i mean the blues and purples like that are are colors that work very beautifully in a watercolor or gouache palette neither of which is used in either of these movies <laughs> and yet the characters with those colors are both associated with the element of water I like a really that. interesting point. And then both of them. All right. So you cannot tell me that the sequence in Raya where the dragons come back. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, she's not the last dragon, as we teased at the beginning of the first episode in this pairing. The sequence where the dragons come back in a great wave of water has 
got to have been inspired by the sequence in Last Unicorn where the sea comes in and and the unicorns are the foam on the waves. Like watching that, I couldn't think of anything else. It's got to be a direct homage, right? I think it certainly can be, you know. Um, But the thing about the dragons returning sequence is it's so much more technicolor. Like, yes, they're, they're coming from the water, but they aren't like actually white caps <laughs> the way that the unicorns are in in, in last dragon like the, the they feel more like fireworks to me in, in in raya you know this this big celebratory colorful chaos in in, in the sky so that's that's how how i read it and i i, I just want to like take this moment to to know that like i really like the type of dragon that we get in raya that that you know like they, they, they don't have wings they don't fly they they jump on water you know like they're they're water dragons and i think that is certainly not unique but it is kind of unusual in disney and western you know fantasy animation to have this type of dragon and i think that it allows for some you know really fun visual flourishes that are direct extensions of those type of dragons and those connections feel there feel like there are too many in very little specific ways uh, for them to be accidental. I, you know, Tasha, you were saying you couldn't unsee the connection between the uh, unicorns and the wave and the, the dragons in the rain. For me, it was the flower. At the beginning of The Last Unicorn, the flower dropping down as the unicorn is talking about her fate and the fate of the rest of the unicorns and how it couldn't possibly be. And it's all kind of just a wish, right? That things were as they were and the unicorns were there and the flower, this pink, purple, blue, I forget Mm. which of the color palette, flower hits the water. And then in in Raya, the the offerings of the flower uh, in, in multiple different scenes, both on the river and in the cupped hands of her Ba, while his while water fills them as he's made of stone, that to me I was like that must have been deliberate. I can't imagine these animators not having done that deliberately. And yet those sort of offerings are you know it's not like the last unicorn invented that. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it, did anyone else catch that? I did not, and I think it's a really interesting comparison. But I think that what you're seeing there is like an actual offertory practice in Asian countries that possibly ended up in Last Unicorn because it was Japanese animators creating it that might not have come from the director's Western sensibilities. Mm. In the same way, I don't know that the the directors specifically set out with the uh, design of the butterfly uh, to to mimic Tezuka, but that certainly would have been a reference that probably any animator in Japan in the era would have been aware of. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think he's just he's just clear, so aware of animated history that that it's kind of hard not to pay homage, even if you're not if you're not consciously paying attention to what you're doing. Sometimes I think it's also interesting that there is actually a dragon in the last unicorn in a sequence in a wordless sequence where Lear goes off to slay a dragon right. in order to impress Amalthea, and it is a very Naga-like dragon. It's not even a Chinese dragon. It's it's this long, thin, serpentine thing, mm-hmm. but it's also very furry. And when he kills it and cuts off his head, what you're left with is just something that looks like a big sagging ball of hair. So I wonder in a way if the the people who animated that were also thinking maybe a little more of a Southeastern 
Asian dragons than like a Japanese dragon, exactly. If they were, or if possibly they were also drawing on like Bayou Trap tapestry type of uh, images for dragons. It's just, it's a very specific looking dragon and maybe inspired a little in the head area by smog from uh, The Hobbit, but definitely not in the body. I mean, we could we could do an entire podcast just on Topcraft, which is a <laughs> fascinating studio. And it was only one of the many Japanese studios that produced stuff for Rankin Bass. Just happened to be the one that did their most the most of their traditional animation. Yeah, in the same era, Rankin Bass was still putting out animated, uh, particularly animated holiday specials that were cell animated, some of which had very similar designs to uh, this kind of movie. But in an earlier era, they were mostly producing stop motion animation, like the Santa Claus is coming to town and Ralph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which visually was very different and which was also all firmed out to a Japanese studio. Was it Japanese? I, I didn't know that. Interesting. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, so pretty much all of the animation done for Rankin Bass was done by a handful of Japanese studios. Hmm. Uh, Topcraft is probably the, the most uh, consistent of them, but they worked with Toei early on uh, at one point. And, oh God, I'd have to pull them up, but there, there are a bunch of, of studios that they worked with, both for... Um, the stop motion and the traditional cell animation and in a lot of ways it it was it was really instrumental in terms of how japanese animation developed after that too uh in its own way like the the two absolutely fed each other that does sound like uh, something that needs its own podcast. And if you ever yeah. do that podcast, uh, we'll show up and talk to you about it. Uh, <laughs> getting back to Raya and Last Unicorn in conversation with each other, I think it's interesting that both of these films have kind of unconventional parent villains with a child who ends up kind of switching sides with a, a child, an adult child who's much more of a sympathetic character and ends up kind of on the side of the angels. It's just an interesting pair dynamic. There's more, and you know, with the hint of romance between the, one of the protagonists and that uh, side switch and child. <laughs> I don't know that there's a whole lot to say about that. I just, I think it's kind of interesting yeah. that Namari and Lear are both kind of start out seemingly as representations of, as like messengers for the stronger villains of the piece. Although, I think Raya walks back the idea that Namari's mother is maybe a strong villain. It, it turns her into something who feels a lot more like the Princess Mononoke's uh, Lady Eboshi. I, I mean, I think we can briefly mine it just to note that the, quote, father-son relationship between uh, King Haggard and Prince Lear is superficial at best. I think, doesn't he even say, like, he's not really his son? He's just, like, yep. kind of... He, yeah, he just took a man? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lack of real connection between those characters, especially when compared to that between uh, Namari and, and her mom, who is kind of given an opportunity to explain her, her actions in a, you know, somewhat reasonable sounding way that forces Namari to like 
make a kind of tough decision. It doesn't seem like Leary has to make a, a, a tough decision. You, you know, like his his dad could give two shits about him when when we meet him, and that you know there doesn't really seem to be any loyalty there and maybe that's just kind of an extension of you know haggard being a kind of anemic villain you know um, as we discussed in the in the first part i think one thing that that i noticed with that same parallel is that it makes sense considering that the last unicorn is is much more preoccupied with these folks as individuals and the individualistic nature of their personal quests and the way they you know align with each other at particular times Whereas Raya is much more interested in systems thinking. It's about communities, it's about families, it's about trying to knit the world together. And while, of course, the last unicorn involves trying to like bring back the unicorns, it's not like bring back the unicorns to fix humanity or to make mm-hmm. the world better. Or to, It's specifically to heal the one individual who is alone. Right. And there's that parallel, I think, with Lear and Haggard and Namari and her mother, you know, Namari and her mother are a family unit and they and they believe in doing things together for their country to better the people around them. Haggard specifically wants nothing but to satisfy his own need for anything to get him out of his melancholy. And his son is just a pawn in that game. Uh, Namari's mother may have a moment where she says, you're still my kid, you have to do what I want, I'm in charge. But she never decides that she's worth nothing haggard is ready to throw lear away in a in a second because it's all about himself speaking of deciding that your kid's worth nothing i had a (laughs) real hard time not seeing namari as zuko from the last airbender tv show Mm. you know she's she's the child of a powerful leader who is ruthlessly representing a segment of the population that kind of wants to take over all the other segments and she is the the primary villain of the piece that's constantly engaging in martial arts battles for superiority with the protagonist and then slowly she comes around to feeling that she's on the wrong side of things it just it's a little too zuko for me i have to say but speaking of what John was saying about uh, the unicorns coming back to to heal one individual, this isn't the individual you were talking about, but I think it's an interesting parallel between these two films that they do both end with the fake out character death, the <laughs> Disney death that I've been writing about since 2013, 2014. Oh, did I think of you during Raya, Tasha? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just, it's so codified at this point. I, I, fighting against it feels like fighting the ocean, but I am just so over the fake out death. Even when we know it within the story, like there, yes, it's, this is going to pay off and they're all coming back. There's no way that, that Raya and all of her boon companions are going to die at the end of this movie. Yeah, you get Disney death on top of Disney death on top of Disney death in this one, Tasha. <laughs> you must have been uh, having some problems. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's all one big thing as opposed to something that annoyed me at every individual turn. And to be truly honest, Disney deaths don't annoy me nearly as much if there isn't somebody left behind to either performatively mourn or worse yet to say nice things about the quote-unquote dead protagonist so they can revive just in time to hear those things that would never have been said to their faces you know jungle book style 
Yeah, I mean, I think think the 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 way this stuff is portrayed matters too. Because I I found the 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 mass death scene here uh, really spooky and effective, uh, even though you know I knew it wasn't going to last. Yeah, like like right from the jump where we're getting you know the the population of this world turned into to stone, you know, one, one by one. That's when I first started thinking of of you, Tasha, and, and, and the Disney death. But you know, I was kind of like arguing with Natasha in my head as, <laughs> as I was as I was watching because like, oh I do that all the time <laughs> you you are not the first critics to tell me that they have developed an inner Tasha that they have to argue but against actually there, there are two Tashas within you you know which one wins actually uh, when I watch movies I have Tasha on one shoulder and Scott on the other <laughs> um, but but anyway I do even though it's like so clear that these people have been turned to stone are going to be unturned at, at some point. I like Keith, I found it really effective and spooky just as a as a device. And I think the reason why is because they're still there. You know, we still have this physical presence of these people who are gone and it's just like a constant reminder of death. Like it's a death you can't escape, you know. So I think that balances the the weight that is lost with in the knowledge that it is not going to be permanent. I think that in the moment, the effect that those, you know, temporary deaths have on the people in the world is really strong. I think there's also just something in the imagery. First, in the imagery of when the drone wash over someone, they all take on that posture mm-hmm. of a, kind of a, an offertory idol with their hands out in that uh, that cupped position. I think that ends up being a lot spookier and stranger than if they were caught Pompeii style in right. a kind of a twisted rictus of whatever they were feeling when uh, it washed over them. You you don't get a bunch of fleeing, terrified children caught as statues, like in this uh, horrifying posture of uh, being afraid for their lives and, and having lost them. You get these strangely peaceful things that are in their way almost more eerie i actually really like that image and its uh symbolism it had some doctor who um weeping angels vibes for oh, me. yeah i can see that but there's also i think there is an emotional power in first raya and then the others giving up their stones knowing specifically that they were sacrificing themselves in that way and the fact that raya goes to her disney death willingly as an illustration for others i think there's actually a lot of emotional power in that so it didn't bother me per se but then almost very few of the disney deaths bother me individually it's kind of like the bechdel test you know it's not that it's wrong for any one individual film it's just as a pattern that it kind of bothers me But getting back to the the comparison, Lear in The Last Unicorn actually dies. He sacrifices himself for the unicorn and goes down and is dead and has to be healed and revived by the unicorn. And I think that's a very different form of the Disney death. It's not a, oh, we all mistakenly think he's dead. No, he's fine. Now the entire cart fell on Trusty, but his leg was just broken. He's okay. <laughs> he he actually made the ultimate sacrifice. And only the fact that they're traveling with an incredibly powerful magical creature made that not happen. And to me, that's kind of a different animal. I, really briefly, I think I just want to, you know, note that these are in their own way, 
both princess stories and you know princess story is a lot more loaded in the in the disney canon than it than it is in the rank and bass one so i think you have to kind of like think about them in you know sort of different contexts and also i guess like technically lady amira isn't a, a princess but she's certainly kind of filling uh that role in the in the final act of the of the film but you know i think Raya is just kind of interesting to me in the sort of evolution of the Disney princess archetype and the fact that both here and in Moana, we have, you know, quote unquote, Disney princesses that have no, they have no love interest, uh, at least not, uh, <laughs> you know, blatantly. Uh, so, and in Last Unicorn, you know, once she turns into this sort of princess figure, she kind of loses herself to her prince figure, you know, which is sort of the thing that we have always sort of critiqued about princess stories. So, you know, I don't know that there is necessarily, you know, anything super in- insightful to say here, but I just kind of want to to note how they are both functioning in the context of princess stories. Yeah, I think you're right in saying that we're getting further and further away from the traditional canon of what a princess story is. And that's great. Uh, <laughs> in in the moment when Bot first said something about Raya being a princess, I kind of had a moment of, uh, okay, of course, we got to wedge that in there somewhere so we can put her in the Disney princess line, which is an incredibly lucrative marketing tool. And then when it turns out that her her opposite number is also a princess, yeah. it's like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, double-fisted princess action. But uh, Amalthea feels a lot more like a traditional princess, and it honestly feels deliberately and consciously subversive that you're rooting for her to not end up with her prince. Mm. Like, he's not a villain. He's not the prince in Frozen. He's a sympathetic and sweet character, but he's she can hit such a higher bar. You know, she can do better. And by doing better, I mean, go be a, a beautiful, immortal, powerful creature in her own place as opposed to being like kind of a a bland princess figure. But she also can't experience love without him. That's another really (laughs) interesting thing about these two movies is like the mythical creature, the so-called but not really last of their kind in each movie, their fall and their subsequent revival are both due to just very human traits and the inevitability of those human traits in enacting themselves. So even with the difference between how the characters are, what roles they play in the, in their own movies, uh, let alone like how they end up, it's all at the end, humanity's fault and humanity's success that makes them anything. The Last Unicorn is streaming on Amazon Prime Video and the Criterion channel for subscribers. It's rentable on streaming services like Redbox and YouTube, and it's streaming free on Tubi with ads. It's also available in a Blu-ray DVD combo box from Shout Factory. Raya and the Last Dragon is currently only on Disney Plus as a premium rental, meaning you got to pay an extra 30 bucks to stream it right now. But if the timeline for Mulan was any indication, it should be available for widespread digital rental within the next month. It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world is good for you? 
Well, I kind of teased this in, in the first part when I said that the, the last unicorn wasn't the memorable unicorn entertainment of, of my youth. For me, that was a film called Unico in the Island of Magic, um, which, uh, speaking of Osama Tezuka, is a uh, Unico as a character that he created, um, although I don't think he had anything to do with Unico in the Island of Magic, which is actually a sequel to The Fantastic Adventures of Unico, which uh, I don't, I I think I've seen, but I have never revisited. But oh, have I revisited Unico in the Island of Magic in my dreams and in my nightmares and occasionally at the AV Club when we often received letters to our old Ask the AV Club feature, which uh, was basically just like, help me remember this thing from my childhood. And I think like half of them were about Unico in the Island of Magic, uh, which ran uh, on the Disney Channel in the mid-80s. It's a 1983 film, I should note. Yeah, 1983 in Japan and the US. But it ran on the Disney Channel in the mid to late 80s, which is where I first encountered it. And it is a -a (laughs) one-of-a-kind movie. Has anyone seen it here? No. I've seen Still some no. snatches of it. Like yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, the full movie for yeah. I mean, various it's, reasons. I it's, promised it's, I was going to watch it like 15 years ago when I was running the Ask the AV Club column. And it, it started, it became a humongous in-joke where people would deliberately write in with scenes from Unico. <laughs> yeah. I, I kept swearing I was going to watch it. Now, both of these movies are streaming on uh, Amazon Prime Video for subscribers. Yeah. And I have no excuse. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was very hard to find for a long time there, which I think sort of contributed to this sort of like memory palace uh, version that people have of it. But it is a singularly weird film with maybe the creepiest villain character I can think of in a children's animated film. I kind of don't want to say too much about it other than it involves a very small and very cute unicorn named Unico, who is found by a young girl named Sherry, and they have to go on a quest together, you may say. But uh, what precipitates that quest is Sherry's brother acting at the behest of this evil, this villain, Lord Karuku, turning their family and literally everyone into what the film refers to as living puppets, which are actually just stone figures, which uh, Raya made me think of as well. Basically, they uh, turned the whole world except for Sherry and Unico into these terrifying, blocky uh, stone figures. And I'll just leave it there and say that if, if that at all piques your interest, you should maybe uh, imbibe your, your personal mind-altering substance of choice and check out Unico <laughs> in the Island of Magic. And don't say I didn't warn you. Uh, John, what about you? It's been good for you. Well, not Unico. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Although now I'm thinking about which mind-altering substance to imbibe. A very strange, very quick aside about Unico is that uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of the same people who worked on that movie also worked on Barefoot Gen, and I cannot even describe how completely different those two movies are. Good Uh, lord. Barefoot Gen, for those listening who have not seen it, it has probably one of the most striking examples of nuclear warfare put on film in any capacity this is an animated film so it is two very different films and they came out like within five days of each other i'm pretty sure so that's a little interesting tidbit Hmm. i'm also going to choose a japanese movie i'm also going to choose an animated movie this one's a little bit probably better known 
when I was watching The Last Unicorn, and I don't know why this kept coming up in my head, but I kept thinking of The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Wow. By Isao Takahata, who was one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli, and typically less beloved in the West in particular than Hayao Miyazaki, which I, as Tasha knows very well, I find to be abysmal, uh, (laughs) abhorrent. I can't stand that he does not get the same kind of credit. And this movie is, by many people's accounts, his masterpiece. And while it is not about a last final mythical creature, it does at its core have a sort of mythological figure, this princess born of a bamboo cutting, potentially gifted by the Buddha, uh, potentially, uh, well, it's, I don't want to spoil it, but it is based on the uh, tale of the bamboo cutter, which is an old Japanese folk tale. And it has at its core certain things that these other movies do. One of the questions is, do the worlds that these mythical beings exist in deserve them? And why are they so dedicated to those worlds, even when they often wear their failures on their sleeves? I think this movie deals with that tension very beautifully. uh, And I also think it is sort of a remarkable portrayal of, and not necessarily human being that utterly and fully believes in her humanity, which makes it kind of an interesting pairing with these other two as well kind of get the spectrum in that's a fascinating comparison i would not have thought to put these movies together but uh, yeah tale of the princess kyuga is kind of what you'd get if uh last unicorn ended with heaven showing up and saying yeah yeah unicorns are are too awesome for earth you guys are going back to uh some some mythical ethereal plane now it it is kind of a, a movie about people dealing with the ineffable which they don't necessarily deserve and having that ineffable love their their human flaws, isn't it? It really kind of is. And it is another movie that has a very different take on family and community and what those things mean. So, you know, I mean, obviously we're talking about very well-trod subjects here. It's pretty much every movie has some sort of commentary on what it means to live in a society. Yeah. But I do think it it is uh, a nice, very different stylistically from both of these movies and in terms of character very different but thematically i think we're they're all kind of playing in the same pool tasha how about you you know i i was only going to recommend one thing but i'll recommend two things the first thing is an article that john wrote for me at polygon that is uh, the reason he's saying I'm the one that knows full well his feelings on Takahata. We did, when the Studio Ghibli films came to HBO Max, we did a giant package on Studio Ghibli, like breaking down all of the individual films and kind of digging into some of their themes. And one of my favorite pieces that we did was uh, John wrote this piece called The Unsung Genius of Studio Ghibli's Risk-Taking Realist, Iseo Takahata. And he digs pretty deep into some aspects of Takahata's work. I, I, I'm not nearly as in love with Takahata's work as I am with Miyazaki. And John explains to me why that's true, why Takahata was was constantly kind of trying to break the Ghibli mold and, and do something new. And he went further out on a limb in experimenting visually, stylistically, narratively, like just constantly pushing the envelope into new places, whereas Miyazaki kind of used the same visuals to tell 
very different stories, but still stories within the same kind of mythos, the same canon, the same storytelling arena. And we all love that particular arena, but Takahata was was just trying to do something very different in a consistently, well, back to idiosyncratic kind of way. So I really love this article for the way it opened up his work for me and kind of helped me make sense out of uh, some of what I was feeling about it. But the thing that I was going to recommend, um, weirdly enough, you're going to think I'm uh, taking the piss here a little bit, but uh, it's a little 2002 movie called The Ring, directed by Gore Verbinski. Uh, I was recently invited on a podcast called The Best Little Horror House in Philly, where the conceit is that the guest is asked to name the best horror movie of all time. And I'm not sure that I would have been able to do it or would have been comfortable doing it, except that uh, the the host has had so many other people on the show. So I could just knock off uh, movies like The Shining and, and Aliens and The Thing and Cabin in the Woods, like a whole bunch of movies that might have been jockeying for position. And we we took up The Ring. I was going to do The Orphanage, which is probably still my favorite uh, horror movie. But when we were discussing options, it turned out that he had never seen The Ring. And the chance to introduce a hardcore horror maven to that film was just too delightful. Rewatching that movie, you know, rewatching The Last Unicorn may be a little disappointing. Rewatching The Ring was just kind of a, an eye-opening experience. That film is so meticulously crafted to be scary. It's so well assembled at every stage. And it's still spooky, even having seen it, I don't know, at least four times by now. Uh, it still unnerved me uh, to the point where I had to stop at a couple of points. I'm not going to get into it in detail. We we talked about it so long. We we pretty much rivaled the runtime of The Ring in breaking down all of the ways that The Ring worked. And it was a really fun, in-depth conversation about horror and what scares us and how horror is constructed, how the storytelling of horror works, but also just the specifics of The Ring. But I'll just say... Revisiting the opening sequence of The Ring in particular, it's just it's such a hilarious mastercraft in messing with the audience for fun. And it's a really cool example of what somebody who's very self-aware in the horror sphere, but still crafting good horror can do. Uh, I was I was really impressed revisiting this movie. And it's also an Amazon Prime video. So it's a pretty easy pickup if you're already on that service. I don't think I'll be revisiting the ring anytime soon. <laughs> as 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 our as our resident scaredy cat, uh, I can definitively say once was enough for for me there. But I I am I, very I, impressed that you got through it the once, given how you feel about horror and tension yeah. in particular. I'm I'm impressed too, frankly. Good job, me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, Gore Verbinski's The Ring, and uh, if you watch it maybe uh, check me out on the best little horror house in philly podcast talking about it for uh, a really long time keith what about you i like that movie too uh, I, I, it is a really scary movie it's, it's definitely cool. one you can point to as you know you can you can get it done inside a pg-13 uh rated horror movie uh even if uh if there's perhaps too many of them oh God, that's uh, right i forgot yeah i know it's it's super scary for a pg-13 um i have a horror movie recommendation as well and uh, uh and i'm about six months behind when everyone was talking about this film but uh for some you know it's got to it so it's new to me uh it's a film called host it is a film set during and filmed during the early days of the pandemic, and it is a also a very scary film that, that 
uh, kind of takes a lot of the tricks from a found footage film and applies them to a new format. In the in the, in the premise, we'll kind of explain why. It is about uh, a bunch of uh, bored people who decide to socialize and break up the tedium during the pandemic by holding a seance uh, via Zoom. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's just, this does not go well. Uh, but it's, directed, it's a British film directed by Rob Savage, who really makes great use of the limitations and the possibilities of the Zoom format. You might not think that a Zoom call can be scary. It is a very scary uh, Zoom call. It's a lot of tension. It's nice little bits of uh, humor to alleviate the tension as well. Uh, the little nods to uh, the oddness of the moment in which we are living. And uh, it is uh, definitely recommended. And I know I, say, I feel like I say this for every recommendation. Maybe it's just I have a short attention span. But uh, it's also short. It won't take up too much of your time. It's, it, is, uh, it is a mere 56 minutes long oh good uh, lord yes uh but uh um, are we I sure it's not television uh, yeah well <laughs> let's not let's not start uh but uh, uh it was but i was glad when it was over because i was i was quite uh i was quite unsettled by the whole thing uh it's on shutter i think exclusively on on shutter right now so uh it's another reason to check out uh, that service which i like quite a bit Oh, I forgot to say the Takahata is on HBO uh, Go Max. Which one is it these days? <laughs> HBO to be Max. honest, I mix it up. It's, the <laughs> it's on Max. HBO Max. HBO, HBO Go, Go is Max. dead. I think HBO Go is dead. HBO Now is dead. HBO Max. HBO Max. Dot go. Dot biz is the correct. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. You can get scared or scared or unnerved or uplifted uh, with our recommendations this week. <laughs> but thank you to everybody for the offerings. Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop on March 30th and April 6th. Genevieve, you want to tell us what's next up on the menu? For many years, Tina Turner has been extremely reluctant to talk about her past, which may be inspiring to fans as a testament to her resilience and strength, but is filled with traumas she'd rather forget. Nevertheless, the new HBO documentary Tina tells that story in full, from her troubled childhood in Nutbush, Tennessee, to her ascent in the music business under the monstrously abusive Ike Turner, to her comeback as an 80s pop sensation. Her relationship to the 1993 biopic What's Love Got to Do With It, based on her autobiography I, Tina, is a fascinating wrinkle in the documentary and a great example of her ambivalent feelings about telling her story and how her story gets told. On our next episode, we'll look at her remarkable career through the lens of biography and biopic and see what they tell us about the real Tina Turner. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Last Unicorn, Raya and the Last Dragon, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Um, I'm a freelance writer. You can check out what I'm up to, uh, generally speaking, in, on Twitter at kfips3000. I write for such places as uh, GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide, uh, occasionally Polygon. Um, I'm, I'm all over the place, and uh, and I, I like it that way. Um, and I also I'm gonna I'm gonna slowly I'm gonna slowly start beating the drum without without making uh, uh, you know driving getting everyone sick of it. But uh, I, I have a publication date for my book Age of Cage, which is a book about Nicolas Cage movies. It'll be out in October or November. Uh, so it's sort of a publication date. Uh, you know, it's available for your for your Christmas shopping purposes, and and I will shut up about it until I can until I can actually uh, uh, send you to a pre order link or something. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, where I have edited both Keith and John recently, and you can find me sporadically engaging with Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. 
John, how about you? I am the news editor at Publishers Weekly, and I run a little newsletter every Saturday morning about cartoons and grief. It's called Tears for Tunes. You can find it at tearsfortunes.substack.com. Like everyone else, I have <laughs> made a substack, and at the end of every week, I regret it. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> You you can uh, also find me on Twitter at at John H. Marr, and I freelance for Vulture and Polygon mostly. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having me aboard, friends. <laughs> well, we should note that Marr is spelled M-A-H-E-R, in case you're looking for it, on the Twitters. And I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, where you can very occasionally find me writing these days. I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Our absent co-host, Scott, is on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and he also is a freelancer who's all over the dang place, but you can look for him particularly in the New York Times. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content. Justice League, y'all, it's coming up <laughs> at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it and also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite film podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Ooh.